The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness. Superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. Hello and welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, webmaster and executive producer of the Spidey Radio Network. Thank you for listening to the show. This show is powered by spidey-dude.com. It's part of the general network that powers it. You can support this show, if you like, via patreon.com slash spideydudenetwork. You can also leave us a voicemail, 818-925-6631. We'll play that voicemail in a future episode. We also like to get emails every once in a while. Be sure to leave us an email, if you like, gargoylesvoices at gmail.com. Follow us on social media. At Spidey Network on Facebook is the general network Facebook page. But you can also follow this exclusive Twitter handle, at From Erie on Twitter. Follow us there to get show updates at both places. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe if you're listening to us on YouTube. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcasting app, you can always leave us a five-star review. And we will read all of that feedback in a future episode. Want to give a shout out before we get started also is to our to our patrons, Scott and Venkman. Thank you for your support of this show and all the shows on the Spidey Radio Network. As always, we thank all of our guests and our host for this show. And with that, I turn it over. Welcome back to Voices from the Eerie, everybody. I am Greg Wachanski, your co-host, and joining me as usual is my other co-host, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello, everyone. And also, today is October 28th. The fourth episode of Young Justice Season 4 just aired, and I can hear the Young Justice fandom cursing his name from here. The story editor and producer of the first two seasons of Gargoyles, the writer of the SLG comic book, co-creator of the series, and the producer and story editor of Young Justice. And once again, they're damning his name from here, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Howdy. Greg, I gotta say about today's episode, kudos on the ruthlessness. All right, we'll begin with a little bit of news. This is Nightwatch, reporting from New York, Travis Marshall. Tonight, more on the news that has rocked Manhattan, if not the world. First, we have some sad news to report. The voice of Preston Vogel, Peter Scolari, fantastic actor, very recently passed away. Yeah, that one broke my heart. He was a nice guy. He was a, a lot of fun. Uh, in the booth. Uh, I, I mean, I won't pretend I knew him well, but you know, he came to record for us and he was just a, a kick to have in the booth, kick to talk to outside the booth uh, and obviously incredibly talented. Uh, Bosom Buddies is still brilliant. Newhart still brilliant. Uh, he's just great. He always was great. I had such a crush on him as Hildegard. Loved him in Bosom Buddies, and um, <laughs> love and loved him as Vogel. It may have been a small role, but as we'll discuss later, it definitely had a big impact. 
We've also got some good news to report on the NECA front. Demona is still not up for pre-order, soon we hope, but they showed off two new figures so far. They showed off Bronx, who looks badass, and he comes with cloaked wings for Goliath. I am so excited about those cloaked wings. They just look amazing. Cool. And we also got a great look at Hudson. I was super impressed with the Hudson just because of the the wear and tear it looks like on his armor and stuff was just really well done. They all look really great. Yeah, I cannot wait to get these. That's in my hand. I cannot wait till we have till we get all of these. And um, they are not up for pre-order yet, but we do know we're going to get more information on Bronx and Hudson next year. And they announced they're going to come with larger pieces for larger figures with the smaller figures like the humans, Lex, Bronx to keep the costs down on the larger figure. So Goliath doesn't have two pairs of wings because that would raise his cost. So it keeps everything evened out. And I think that's a fair way to do it, especially for a completist like me who's going to get everything. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I, there's not enough shelf space right now, but I, I need to find it. I'm afraid we're out of time. This has been Nightwatch. Sleep well. And now let's move on to the episode, the penultimate episode of this five-part pilot. I keep saying this, but the animation and the art direction is terrific. I'm looking at the sequence in Central Park, and little things like the detailed flower patterns under the umbrellas. Yeah, the animation in the Central Park sequence was really, really great. Um, The animation in Cyberbiotic, yeah, not as great. but yeah, you know what? One thing I did notice really, on the cyber really big at that cut of art sequence. Yeah, it was beautiful. Uh, one of the things I noticed on the uh, central part and, and the cyberbiotic ship, even when they come up through the hatch, they could have just put like static city line underneath it, but it's moving. Just through that little bit of hatch that you see, you see that it's moving, and I was like, "That's a pretty cool detail." Hmm. The best part of this whole episode for me was Elisa taking on five commandos and just whooping their butts. Oh, God, yes. She is (laughs) such a badass. We still weren't quite sure what to expect of her, but the fact that she pulls that off, and these aren't incompetent henchmen in the slightest. I remember the first time I saw this. There's that sequence where they blow up the... uh, the boathouse after Elisa jumps in and Bruno, the le- their leader says, well, that takes care of that on any other show. It would have stopped there, but Nope. They decide to make sure. Well, again, this was a, one of the reasons that we went from it being a four parter to a five parter. We just felt like we had all this great material, largely, uh, not entirely thanks to Michael Reeves because the decision was made at the script stage. Um, and Michael had just written so much great stuff. And in order for us to do it truly as a four-parter, we would have had to cut 22 minutes of material out of out of the what you currently think of as the five parts. And um, I just didn't want it. I thought he had written such a great script that all of it deserved to get made. Unfortunately, we had the ability to go from four parts to five parts. But a lot of this, you know, was, you know, under threat of being lost um, back when it was still supposed to be a four-parter because uh, they're just, you know, not not enough minutes of screen time. 
uh, in five parts, it, it really gave the piece as a whole some elbow room. And so you get to see at least that really go through some stuff to uh, save Goliath, who she barely knows. And that was important to us that, you know, something I talked about early with Michael and with Frank is that um, we wanted Elisa to not be a damsel in distress. We wanted her, you know, not that Goliath would never save her, but that for every time Goliath saved her, we tried to balance it with her saving him. And, um, and we probably didn't balance it a hundred percent over the course of the entire series, but I think we, showed here in the pilot what the basic dynamic was in their relationship and it wasn't her being in distress and him coming to to the rescue it was a mutual thing i do wonder a little about how much the commandos knew like did they know he was a cop um they seemed prepared to kill her and you don't one would think that xantos wouldn't lightly take on the killing of a police officer in new york that's a pretty dangerous thing to do. Um, but uh, it occurred to me that maybe they just didn't realize who she was. Um, it was just this chick hanging around with the monster. Uh, we don't actually want to kill the monster. We just want him to think we do. But, this, but you know, if it sells the illusion, why not kill his, you know, the human? Oh, that crossed my mind last night, and I don't remember if I had an answer for that way back. <laughs> yeah, I've seen people kind of mock the commandos for being bad shots here, but then, but I would think they should realize later on that they're not trying to kill Goliath. I mean, they are shooting to miss just narrowly. And I actually commented in general here. I was watching this episode during my lunch break from work today, and um, that the blonde female commando is a badass i think she's tougher than bruno she's the one that even she's the one that even says you know let's not buy that this blew up and she actually died let's check it out like she's no fool but this the this whole thing like really set up that elisa is this modern warrior and not to be taken lightly and i really love that about it agreed I was also looking at some early outlines of Awakening back when Eric Luke was still writing it, and and it seemed like you had the pack in place of the commandos at certain points. I remember, uh, but I'll, if that was in there, I'll take your work, word for it. Um, I think we decided ultimately that the pack was a unique enough concept that it required its own introduction um, as opposed to just using them as Santos' stooges. Uh, and the commandos were, by intent, a little more generic than that. Um, and I don't remember, I honestly don't remember, that might have been Michael's uh, call uh, or notion, or it might have been a discussion, or it may have been that Eric saw the development that included the pack and said, oh, I'm going to include them here, and then we may have decided, no, the pack need to be more special than this. So, and I just can't remember, it's just so long ago. Either way, things worked out. I think Elisa would have recognized these celebrity TV stars hunting her in Central Park. <laughs> I, I think the thing is, is that if we had gone that route, they probably wouldn't have ended up being celebrity TV stars. So I'm glad we took the route we did. We didn't want the commandos to be too interesting. We didn't want you questioning too much what they were about. 
Well, like Elisa said, comic book rejects. I like that line a lot. I do think we should address that urban legend about Elisa saying damn in the boathouse because I still hear longtime fans bring that up. And I'm not talking about casual fans. I'm talking about people we know who swear that they heard it. Very much the Mandela effect. Yeah, I I remember that. And I remember going, she definitely doesn't say it. And I would watch the episode and go, yeah, no, she doesn't say it. And I can't even figure out exactly where they think it happened. Uh, I watched it again last night, and I, w- I didn't look out for that specifically, although I remember doing that in the past. But, uh, you know, we were Disney in the 90s. There's no way we were saying, damn. I doubt we even recorded that, let alone it made it into an episode. Um, I don't even think it would have crossed our mind to record that. That's certainly not the script. Um, I don't know where that came from. I don't even know a moment where it sounds like she's saying damn. Yeah, it went through the fandom like wildfire there for a while, though, that she had said damn. And, like, again, like the days of VHS, unless you had recorded a copy when it was playing, we didn't, nobody had a copy to say, no, look, here it is. She doesn't say it. People like a good urban legend. It's it's an odd phenomenon, I guess. But, but, uh, yeah, I remember that was a big thing. I got a lot of questions about that way back in the day. Um, but, you know, never happened. We also meet the jogger in this episode. It won't be the last time we see him. And retroactively, we find out this is the second time we're meeting Vinny. But you're already beginning to populate the background. The extras that keep popping up again and again. I mean, I already mentioned Vinny and the jogger. Last episode, we got Brendan and Margot. And it's one of those little touches you don't see too often in most shows, but I really enjoy it here. Yeah, I mean, for us, uh, A, you know, there's an economic aspect to it, which is that, oh, we can just reuse these guys. But then, you know, you make it make it funny. You know, you do a joke out of it. It's like, oh, this guy again. Oh, I remember that couple. I remember this guy. You know, that kind of thing. You can have some fun with it. Um, I've found that bands like those kind of callbacks and, so I'm happy to to do that kind of stuff because on top of everything else, uh, you wind up with more characters to play with. You know, uh, it just becomes uh, more fun. Um, and also, you know, I like to if you find a little something like in Brendan and Margot or the Jogger that you can sort of hang your hat on. It's like, all right, uh, I, I know where to go with these guys. Uh, and so we looked for that. Uh, I mean, this was the first show I produced, so I'd never really done it before, but this is sort of the training ground where I learned to do that. And I've probably done it even more in the series that followed a little bit in Spectacular Spider-Man and a lot in Young Justice. We didn't talk about gargoyles and naming too much. We touched on it briefly in Awakening Part 1. We didn't really get to it last episode when Hudson takes on his name, but we get the trio in Bronx taking their names here, and I always thought it was interesting, but what is, behind the scenes, what was the creative decision behind them not having names? I mean, it looks like in the original memos and notations, you guys went back and forth on that a lot. I think we did. I mean, uh, we kept initially trying to find names that worked for them in the past that would still be fun in the present. And we kind of failed. 
Um, Goliath stuck, but nothing else was really sticking. Demona stuck from all the way back in the comedy development. And everything else was just sort of like, eh, that's okay, it's not great. And then we came up with this notion, well, what if the everyone had modern New York names except for Goliath, make him the exception. And then we sort of worked backwards to the notion, well, what if naming is a human thing? What if uh, gargoyles don't do that, but that it's addicting, that once it happens, it, uh, it becomes tough to let go of it. You name something, and that limit is set on it. And so that idea... I think interested us a lot. Um, and we ran with it. So, um, Hudson, you know, makes this point to Lisa in the previous episode when she asked his name and uh, must you humans name everything? Does the sky need a name? Does the river? And, um, she says the river's called the Hudson. Um, and, uh, He's like, fine, then I will be the Hudson as well, you know, with the article. And he shortens it just the Hudson as a name. But I always thought there was something in that that was also sort of a cheat, which is that if he had only said, does the sky need a name? She could have said, yeah, the name of the sky is the sky. And he's like, fine, I will be the sky as well. And, and the name would have just been sky. You know, but the fact of the matter is, is almost every word, certainly every noun, is in and of itself a name of sort. Um, and it's not like the gargoyles didn't use nouns. <laughs> they did use nouns. <laughs> um, and, but actually naming something was something we got to play at even more in the companion comics, the SLG stuff that I did, where you really get to play on the idea more that if everyone calls you by a different noun, so to speak, old friend, mentor, brother, you know, whatever, father, uh, then you're not limited by whatever your one name is. And you can start to, you are different things to different people depending on the relationship. And we explored it a little bit way back in the first episode when Tom was, talking to Brooklyn and Lexington and he's like, what are your names? So yeah, well, except for Goliath, we don't have names. Well, what do you call each other? And he's like, friend, you know, <laughs> like we understand why you're making a big deal out of it. But you're making they, it much more complex than it needs to be. Yeah. And then, but here they find out Hudson's got a name and suddenly they're excited. Wait, we can have names that that's allowed. Um, and, you know, they pick out these names that since they've been spending the whole night flying around Manhattan, they've seen all these names or heard them or something. I don't know where the hell they got them, to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, they must have overheard them, I guess. Uh, or they're really good at reading English, which is tough because we know that at this stage Broadway can't breathe. Um, and Brooklyn's debatable. So it's not like they're getting them off street signs, uh, or one wouldn't think so. But I just uh, I just love the scene, and then there's a great moment 
in the script, they named Brog, and Brog sort of puffs and walks away. And Lexington says, "I think he, I think he likes it." So in the script, you get Brog sort of doing that confirmed, like, "Okay, fine, I'll be Brog." But in the actual animation, he does that, and it seems very dismissive because he walk, he turns and walks away. And so when Lexington says, "I think he likes it," we're like. Yeah, were you watching the same thing I was watching last? Because uh, <laughs> he didn't seem to care for it much. Because, again, the, the board artist had him turn and walk away, but that wasn't in the script. So Lexington didn't seem quite as dopey in the script as he wound up seeming on the screen. Um, but I think it plays funnier the way it is. So I'm, you know, I'm glad. Me too. Um, Oh, so Bronx. And then, could, uh, you yeah. know, Bronx took to Bronx well enough. He would answer to it. Mm-hmm. Hey, Bronx, we thankful you weren't Staten Island. But no, it's a great Martin. naming. It's a, it's a great naming scene. And um, what made you decide to go for New York names? You know, we tried all sorts of stuff. We tried names that sounded, you know, that were rock oriented, like granite and shale and stuff. I mean, uh, we tried. Um, Biblical, more biblical names. Uh, we tried all sorts of things, and and nothing seemed quite right. I mean, we didn't want the show to be Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know, which is an inherently comedic concept. So they went with, frankly, more serious names. You know, Leonardo, Donatello, Michelangelo, Raphael. Those names are actually pretty sophisticated given what the show is, right? Um, so we actually took the reverse approach. I don't mean consciously like, let's be the anti-turtles or something like that. But our names, I think, are sillier. But we had a more serious concept. So I think the idea, at least unconsciously for both, is that contrast. You know, we're going to contrast these creatures of the night, these mysterious uh semi-monstrous beings with, uh, you know, potentially frightening with some silly New York names. Um, whereas the turtles, you know, were the sort of inherently, and I'm not knocking it for this. I think it's great. I, I remember the first time this is before the TV show, but when I first saw the comic book, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I was like, that name is so brilliant. And it is and was, um, so I'm not knocking it, but it's inherently silly. Um, and so they went with, uh, names that were more sophisticated and that gave them the contrast. Um, so I think, uh, unconsciously we were both looking for that and the contrast. And also you just want them to be memorable. Um, and, uh, uh, and that seemed to work for us. So we took a couple boroughs, a couple uh, of the more famous streets in New York and, and a river. And there we had it. And then the fun thing was down the road, trying to come up with, uh, the names for the clones based on Los Angeles for no particular reason, except we lived in Los Angeles. Uh, I mean, it was just that goofy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I cannot wait to talk about that. That's a great episode. Also, um, I noticed, like, we, everybody gets their name, and we're all excited about their names, and then we see 
we get our Demona re- reveal. But yes. we don't decide that she needs a name. I mean, we we know now she already had one. But they don't they aren't like, hey, we all got names today. Do you want a name? <laughs> nope. Don't care yeah, at all. I mean, her name. They have this distraction, you know, just the fact that she's there, uh, I think is so overwhelming to everyone positively, you know, uh, that all thoughts of names sort of go out the window. We're on a much bigger topic now. Um, I think also it's absolutely true that for her, you know, she's wrapped up in these lies that she and Xanatos are telling that story to um, justify her new fake origin to Goliath and, and ultimately to the others. Um, and there's so much lying going on there that it's easy to sort of assume that when she sees Hudson and the trio and Bronx, that she's just, you know, faking her, um, her joy at seeing them. But I don't think that is fake. Um, she has every reason to think that she's going to turn all of them, Goliath included, step by step, not overnight, but to her way of thinking. And she has been alone for so long, this notion of the gargoyles waking up, I think that is a moment of tremendous sincere joy for her when she first sees them. Uh, Not just Goliath, but all of them. And... uh, and it obviously is going to turn sour next episode. But um, as of, you know, that moment of reintroduction, that moment of reunion, I think all of that is very um, real, even though in the middle of it all, she's telling all these lies. Hmm. I, I agree. It's very genuine, but she's also prioritizing her scheming. I mean, she was there the previous night, which we know thanks to, um, Awakening Part 3 and her not being hidden in the shadows of Xanatos's, uh secret passage. I still think that was his bathroom, but any, but I still wonder. I mean, she, if she was probably had to restrain herself la- the previous night from running out to initially say hello and reintroduce herself after a thousand years, but still here, she's prioritizing her scheming. Like we've said, she's lying the first one of the first things she asked them to do is to do this favor for xanatos oh yeah i mean like i said she is still telling all these lies pretty unashamedly uh but uh i don't think that undercuts real emotion either i i don't think for her at least those are mutually exclusive ideas for her to carry within herself to be sincerely glad to see them and yet have no compunction about lying to them and manipulating them. Um, it's very demona for me. <laughs> <laughs> There's that look that Xanatos gives them when they first embrace. And I've been, and I've read that look so many times over the years watching this. There's a part of the most recent time I watched it. My thought was, Oh, that poor sap. He has no idea. Isn't this the, the first time we find out Xanatos's name is David? Yes. Isn't this episode so it's a whole That's bunch true, of names I, I i that may be true i just do not remember i, de- I didn't take note of it last night or at least in, it is we hadn't said it in the last it, it, it is the first time That's so, so it's all about names uh, i guess that was the theme 
Mm-hmm. And she is a great liar and a manipulator because she sounds genuinely grateful to Xanatos here also. And um, we know how bigoted she is towards humans, and we'll discuss this more next time, how much she knows that Xanatos is actually screwing them over. Well, I, screwing them over, I'm not sure I agree with that characterization. Um, using them, absolutely. But, you know, I think he... I think he believes they'll be successful. I mean, he wants those discs. He's not sending them on a suicide mission to get killed. Um, he actually has every reason to believe that they will successfully be able to abscond with those discs that he sent them after. Um, I think there's an element of, uh, is he being ridiculously optimistic or just taking for granted that the combination of their uh, natural abilities, their skill, and their shock value is going to be enough for them to get the job done. Given the fact that Hudson in particular, and this is really more for next episode, but only gets the disc by dumb luck. (laughs) He may have been slightly over-optimistic. And Xanatos being Xanatos, one has to assume that if they had failed or if one of the three teams had failed, he had some backup um, for getting those discs uh, or, you know, yeah. just in case. Sending them in to die. I mean, he's sending them in to speak. And I mm-hmm. assume he gave them as much information as he reasonably thought they could handle. Get in, get the discs, and get out. Um, because he wants the discs. And, by the way, he doesn't not want the gargoyles either. He just... It's it's only later we'll get to this again. There's a lot. Yeah, this episode obviously the next one are very tied close together. But uh, again, he's got no particular interest in killing them. Mm-hmm. There or is getting yeah. killed. I, yeah, there is a line in the movie cut which I actually watched for the first time in over twenty years recently, just to see the differences in the edits and. Um, while a lot was cut from the five-parter, there are a few lines here and there that weren't in the that were in the movie that weren't in the five-parter, and one of them was Xanatos saying that he gave the gargoyles each precise instructions on how to obtain the the uh, disc. So you did cover that; it just wasn't in the televised version. You know, I haven't watched the movie version in a long time. And what's interesting about that is that uh, the version that I supervised the editing for was the movie version not the five-parter, right? You know, we had to, we had deadlines and they were so tight that we had to divide and conquer. So Frank handled the supervising the editing of the, of the same material, but it's five episodes. And I had to do a movie version that we had to edit down to 80 minutes or less. Um, or about that, whatever. I'm not sure the exact length, but I, my memory is 80 minutes. And, uh, so we were working with two different editors, um, and Frank and, and I think Alan Orson, uh, edited, uh, the five episodes and, um, I edited the five episodes into a movie with, uh, a different editor, uh, Richard and his last name is completely escaping my brain, unfortunately. But, uh, so there, there's a, probably a, I mean, there was a different intent between the two pieces, um, but there's probably a, a on top of that just a 
here and there you'll find different emphases uh, based on Frank's proclivities versus my proclivities. Um, I was also ridiculously inexperienced, <laughs> you know, uh, and, but I had a very experienced editor who uh, helped me through it and it turned out great for the purposes that it was designed for, which was um, that premiere we talked about a couple three, four voices of the area ago uh, in Florida. That's what we, that's the one and only reason we built that 80 minute movie. The fact that they then released it on video made me not um, because I'm like, no, this is the abbreviated version. You don't want to put out, you know, you're putting out a video. You want it to be, you know, to maximize the material, not minimize the material. You don't want people who saw it on TV to go, wait, there's less here than what I got for free. You don't want them to go, wow, there's more. Um, so I always felt incredibly annoyed, even though I was the one who edited it, that they used the 80-minute movie for the video. Because I'm like, this, you know, this is 80 minutes as opposed to, you know, uh, 22 times 5, uh, 110. Um so it was a full like half hour shorter than that, than the five partner. And I couldn't understand why uh, Disney home video was putting out this shorter version. I, I didn't get it. Um, you know, I guess it did well enough back in the day, but it, it, it was one of the mind boggling decisions they made. The second being the, truly horrendous cover to that video. Uh, oh, God, yes. Um, but, uh, you know, we've gotten better since then. Demona was immediately intriguing in part one and immediately intriguing when she was reintroduced. I'm not entirely sure. How, I, mean, I, I figured she was lying at that point. I wasn't sure what was a lie and what wasn't, but I remember my... I perked up a bit when she was on the airship and she started saying things like, you won't fire guns in here, you could damage the airship. And I was thinking, she's taken to the 20th century really, really quickly. I mean, I wasn't sure if I figured, I didn't think she was immortal yet, I'm not entirely sure, but that was a, a big red flag right away. Yeah, you know, we were intentionally uh, dropping hints there, her acclimatization was uh, in theory more rapid than Goliath and he had been awakened a day earlier. Uh, and then, you know, there are little uh, things she says here and there, you know, her attempt to drop the guy, the unconscious guard out of, uh, out of the airship, you know, let him fall to the ground and die uh, was pretty cold blooded. And Goliath sort of calls her on that. And her response to that is to say the centuries have made you weak. And um, so we were consciously trying to hint that, you know, what she's told him is clearly not the whole story. Trying to play fair with the audience, I guess. Uh, sometimes I watch it and I go, yeah, we did good with that. And then sometimes I watch it and I go, wow, we were really heavy handed with you, Tim. And, I go back and forth on that. It's not really for me to judge anyway, but uh, 
Um, but yeah, the, it was all intentional. I figured as much. And Goliath is a very interesting line, which you don't really hear often from a hero. He says to kill in the heat of battle is one thing, but not like this. And I understand across many TV shows for standards and practices reasons, heroes just don't kill i mean batman famously has a no kill policy he won't kill the joker and um we can debate the ethics on that one spider-man has no kill policy superman has one most of the time and um and i'm thinking here i, I he distinguished between the two really elegantly and we've seen later on that um when it's called for, he won't hesitate, he won't enjoy it. I mean, he thought he was killing Macbeth and the Price. And I'm talking about the first time he thought he was killing him, not necessarily the second time where he thought Hudson was dead. And um, for all intents and purposes, he kills the Archmage at the end of Avalon. So he, it gives him a little bit more of an edge than most heroes on animated television series seem to have. I mean, yeah, we thought this is a medieval warrior, you know, he... Uh Killing in battle, that uh, would be part of his mindset, part of his uh, rearing, so to speak. Um, but him making the moral distinction between that, you know, in essence, a, a killing in self-defense and taking an unconscious guard and tossing him out of a airship hundreds of feet above the earth, um, you know, making that distinction was, again, part of a design uh, for both characters, one to show Demona's ruthlessness and two to show Goliath's inherent nobility. Um, and also so that, you know, this isn't just some medieval berserker who's going to go loose on everyone. Um, you know, there's a scene where in this episode it looks like he punches both uh, a character who looks more like uh, a dad from 101 Dalmatians than Vinny, but um, <laughs> a character who would end up... And you assume it happens off-screen that he knocks this guy unconscious. Um, and what we later find out is that you know, he hits the side of the wall and a pipe bursts and, and Vinny just faints. <laughs> will eventually reveal. Um, but in, in this episode, you know, you think he knocked him out. Uh, but in fact, Goliath is always about using, you know, when he's in control, using the least amount of force necessary on his opponent. He won't shy away using as much as he needs to, but he's, he's not a character of excess for the most part. Less is more. Mm-hmm. Whereas Demona is just scary even at this point, and she's about to get scarier in the next one. And going back to, um, uh, you know, Xanatos using the gargoyles, Demona's definitely using him as well. Like, there's this arrangement that they have is them using each other to try to get something that they want out of it, and I love their dynamic through this, too. Me, too. But yeah, I definitely agree about their dynamic. I love it. And I've often looked back and people will say, so Xanatos builds but builds the skyscraper and buys his castle just as he found out about this legend from an old book. And I keep thinking, pay attention, guys. He's clearly already known Demona. That's pretty big proof that this isn't BS. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
uh, again, we were trying to play fair, draw the appropriate amount of hints without going so far over that it became dead obvious. But, uh, you know, it, he was still spending a lot of money on a maybe, but uh, he had more reason to think it would come true than uh, than he admits to initially. Mm-hmm. I've seen some comments about the practicalness of some of these cyberbiotics labs. I don't care. They're just fun. And while the show is also very grounded in reality, right here you're also showing us that it's also a little bit comic bookish. I mean, that Air Fortress reminds me a lot of the helicarrier from Marvel Comics, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think we were thinking more in terms of uh, Laputa. Uh... Lapida, I'm not sure how to pronounce, but uh, we were thinking in anime terms, I think, more the comic book terms. Um, but yeah, uh, it's up there, out there, you know, uh, in terms of, I guess you could say silliness, but uh, we just thought it was cool. Um, and if you had a top secret laboratory that you wanted to make sure no one could touch, uh, maybe keeping it moving um, would help. Or maybe it's a showcase for the guy who owns the place who will eventually be. Or, you know, is it something else entirely? But we were firmly in, I mean, I think we talked about this again in an earlier episode, we were firmly in the superhero genre. We just didn't label it as such. So, as always, superhero genre is a mutt genre that encompasses all sorts of other genres and deals liberally from everyone and everything. So in this case, I think we were stealing from Miyazaki. Steal from the best. Right. I'm trying to think, are there any moments here that we haven't touched upon within this particular episode? Oh, I, I mean, there are little things like... Uh, uh, you know, there's the dog. I always thought that uh, Hudson's watching TV later, and one of the scenes shows this puppy um, being fed food with a collar and a license, and I always thought, that puppy looks a lot like that dog, Rogan. Oh. In Central Park. Uh, <laughs> in Central Park, and I always thought, yeah, as a as a puppy, he was all cute, and he had a high life as a TV commercial dog. And then, you know, he got older and scruffier, and, and uh, they just let him loose in the park, and now he's this, you know, wild dog in the park. He's seen better days. But Elisa, she, like, soothes that, that dog really fast, though. Like, that dog, like, comes down from a growl to, oh, I'm happy really quick. Yeah. That's my headcanon, is that the dog in the commercial husband saw is the same dog uh, that Elisa sees later. Um, I like that. I also, I'd forgotten that there was a little clip of Lion King in that. flipping <laughs> I'd completely forgotten about that. Um, so that was sort of fun. Um, we had planned to do way more with the Scarab Corporation. Um, that little logo that on the uh, tracker that's on Goliath that she then moves over to the dog. Um, we thought that 
scare corporation and their robots would be a much bigger part of the show. And then there'd be some revelation at some point that Xanatos owned it so that it was all goes back to Xanatos. But I think, uh, we sort of tipped our hand with it so early that later when we did robots, we just did robots that Xanatos was running in and the scarab corporation wound up, um, kind of falling out of the show until I did the SLG comic, um, where I sort of for fun brought it back. Um, but, uh, that was something that was in the original, uh, pitch. So that there's a sort of big bug like robot that Goliath faces in the pitch in one art card. And that was going to be scare Corp. There are little moments that I don't love, like Goliath is drugged and goes down and then he gets up and then he's tired from the drug again. It's like, is it working or not working? What's going on here? <laughs> um, we needed certain things to happen. So he had to sort of rouse himself, I guess, cause Elisa was in danger uh, got a bit of an adrenaline rush, but it couldn't hold out against the drugs, I guess. Um, there's the yo taxi moment for the trio. Um, that was Lex reenacted at a convention. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Apparently the very first gathering, the Brooklyn cosplayer went out into the street and did that. Did he get a taxi or not? Apparently not. So it was true to life, true to fiction, <laughs> true to art. And then there, there's just you know information getting across in there. Goliath lets Elisa know that sleep rejuvenates them. Um, there's a lot of great lines in here that are very Michael Reeves, like uh, Elisa muttering under her breath. You know, it's a lot to go through for a piece of lawn sculpture. Love that is line. very Michael Reeves line that I just love. Um, and it's, again, very elusive. Michael really was sort of the master at setting uh, her voice, particularly the edgier side of her voice, the cop side of her voice. Um, and uh, I also wondered, like, when the trio go into that elevator and they open the elevator doors and they're like, this isn't like the elevator at the, at the castle. <laughs> it's like... They don't have much experience with elevators. So it's like, well, maybe this that's what this one's like. You're, this one you have to slide down the rope. And I thought, <laughs> man, that, those are metal cables. Those got to chase when you yeah. slide down like that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, we probably covered most of the big stuff. There were a lot of fun little details in this episode that I thought were like, pretty cool. I do have one point that slipped by me earlier. It shouldn't have, but I'm thinking this Goliath and Elisa truly become allies that, that night after he wakes up again. I mean, she didn't, I don't think she quite realized the full extent of what she was doing, but that was the old bargain. You protect us during the day while we watch over you at night. And she ended up doing exactly that. Right. Just naturally, you know, she took on that responsibility without him asking, without them making a deal, without any of that. And that mattered to him. That made a difference. Um, he's like, I, you know, I do believe you saved my life or something like that. And she's like, so now we're even because you saved my life when I fell off the stupid castle. Um, <laughs> and, and I think, you know, for her, it was like, of course, I, you know, protect and serve. That's what I do. But for him, it showed him that there are still humans out there worthy of, of trust. That, and 
So that was a big moment for them when they sort of take each other's hands. And then he starts to go and she says, hey, can I see you later tonight? And he's like, smiles. Very warm. He likes yeah, this uh, this whole thing didn't scare her away. None, nothing that happened scared her away, and she's ready to for the next adventure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I still think she knows quite what she's getting into, and um, be, she ran past an Alice in Wonderland statue, and I can't help but wonder if I'm reading too much into this, but I'm thinking she's going down the rabbit hole. Uh, yeah, I think that was intentional. I mean, obviously that statue's there. Um, you know, Frank took, uh, we talked about this when Frank was on the show, he took all those photos in New York when he went there. Um, and I, you know, like Frank, I had lived in New York for a couple of years, a little more than that, um, myself. So I was aware of what was around New York, including that statue. And so we, but we made a conscious decision to put that in there because we did feel that way. At least it was going down the rap. Um, she was finding her version of wonder. Um, and it was amongst her the whole time, you know, she wasn't leaving Manhattan. She was going to find her wonderland in Manhattan, full of strange creatures and friends and foes and all that stuff, including a red queen, you know, or a red headed <laughs> queen. Yes. <laughs> I've never made that connection before. I love it. And I'm sure, as we'll find out later, I'm sure Demona would love to cut off Elisa's head, off with her head. <laughs> we'll talk about that later, but but um, we're coming up on the hour, and um, I, either of you have anything you want to promote? Uh, I definitely do, but you go first, Jen. Um, mine's just the same as always. Um, uh, taking commissions right now, you can go, well, I don't well, when this airs, I hope I will still be taking commissions. Um, but go to heyaspot.com and you can go to my Etsy store or you can check out my Redbubble. But you can contact me through there and uh, let me know if you need anything. She's doing a very kick-ass commission for me right now. She showed me an update the other <laughs> night. I love it. <laughs> and yes, it's Gargoyles related. Uh, of course. <laughs> uh, and I'm uh, going to... Put in a little uh, good word for uh, Young Justice, which uh, is dropping episodes. We dropped uh, the fourth episode today. I don't know when exactly this uh, podcast is going out, but we will have, we're dropping episodes every Thursday through the 30th of December. Um, and that'll cover our first 13, which is half the season. And then the second half will be uh, coming out weekly in the spring. Um, and we just hope that everyone, uh, watches the show. Uh, we don't have a pickup for season five yet. And, uh, if you want to hashtag save earth 16, um, we just urge you to hashtag keep binging YJ and hashtag spread the word because, you know, if we want more, we've got to prove to them that, uh, it's worth their while to make more. And, uh, um, response to the show so far has been uh, creatively largely positive. I think we've upset some people, but that's all right. Um, and uh, uh, so I'm pretty happy. Uh, I'm definitely happy with how the episodes turned out, and I'm pretty happy with the responses to them. Um, and uh, we just need more people to watch over and over again. 
Yeah. So uh, keep binging YJ. And while you're at it, keep binging Gargoyles. Will do. And then the last thing. Uh, yeah. The last thing is that I've also got a movie coming out uh, in early 2022. It's called Catwoman Hunted. Obviously, it features Catwoman with Elizabeth Gillies starring as Selena Kyle slash Catwoman and with Stephanie Beatriz starting, starting as Batwoman. And uh, it's got a lot of former Gargoyle actors in it, including Jonathan Frake, the voice of Xanatos, um, Keith David, voice of Goliath, and uh, many others uh, are uh, in the, among the voice cast. And it's uh, anime style. I think it turned out really cool. I'm really happy with how the script was brought to life. So I hope people check that out too. I'm really looking forward to it. It looks like a lot of fun. And before we sign off for the for this recording, there was a line in episode three of Young Justice for this season, which I recognize as something I've heard you say many times on Ask Greg and at conventions, which ties in with the morals of Gargoyles quite a bit. Tolerance is never enough. We need to reach a world of acceptance. Yeah, I mean, that's something I feel strongly about. Um, people ask for tolerance and God knows we need more tolerance in the world, but, uh, I think it's insufficient. Um, and, uh, although, uh, to be fair, uh, episode three wasn't written by me. It was written by, uh, Brandon Vietti, um, of young justice season four, young justice phantoms, um, was written by Brandon Vietti. Uh, but we broke the story together. So maybe he got it from me or maybe he just feels the same way. I can't remember now, but, uh, uh, I do think that's really essential that, you know, um, people need to sort of think over what they only tolerate, you know, um, because I do not think that's enough. I think that, um, people need to learn to accept things and, you know, remember that what someone else chooses to do is no skin off your nose, uh, so to speak, as my mom would say. Um, and, uh, so why do you care if, uh, they're different from you? Isn't it great that we're all different and we should be accepting of that? Now I just sound like I'm preaching, but you brought it up. I blame you. Um, <laughs> it's true. Uh, uh, all right, so, uh, Greg, thank you for joining us. Jen, thank you for being such a kick-ass partner in crime. I've been really enjoying this journey. And we will be back next time for Awakening Part 5, where things come to a head. Demon Goliath realizes where he truly stands with Demona, and he has a choice to make as Xanatos' machinations come together. So tune in next time, same Gargoyles time, same Gargoyles channel. piece of lawn sculpture.